Okay, let's, uh, let's get started. Now, I do have a handout out there which is really long, and that's because I put a lot of stuff in there that doesn't, uh, you can read later. So, but um, we didn't finish up last week, so this week we're really going to, you know, wherever we end up today, we're just going to keep moving on to the next section, unless you convince me otherwise, Okay. We're going to try to stay on schedule. But, um, so we're going to talk about hope. This We're going to start with hope. And um, so C.S. Lewis begins with uh, helping us understand that hope is not a form of escapism, like uh, extreme optimism, as if, you know, we're going to ignore the reality of what's happening around us and just pretend and that's really important because that's not what Christian, that's not what hope is for Christians. We talked a little bit about Christian hope when we studied First Thessalonians, and whenever that was last year, maybe. And that Christians ha- have a future, and because you have a future, then that future informs your present. And that is for C.S. Lewis one of the big things. He quotes Hebrews eleven one. And he quotes the King James Version. That's why I have it up there. Now, faith is the substance of things to hope for, the evidence of things not seen. And he stresses substance because when you hope, then that actually means something for the way you live. So you have like a, a, a life. Okay, but how do you learn to hope? And uh, I think, there, well, there's three things, and one is prayer. So when you pray the Lord's Prayer, that's a prayer of hope. Thy will on earth as it is, it is happening in heaven. It's like my own translation, I guess. Um, stream of consciousness is writing there. Uh, we all know it, right? So when we, pray, when we pray for God's will to happen on earth, that is a confession of the fact that we know and believe that's already happening in heaven, and we want it present among us. So when we talk about eternal life or going to heaven, that doesn't necessarily mean only after one passes away, but one can actually then experience in the present. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, I mean. It would just be wishful thinking. It would just be empty words. It would have no substance um, unless that was true. So I don't think we pray the Lord's Prayer because it's empty words and it has no substance, right? We believe it is true and it has a substance and that's why we pray for it. So, But praying for others, praying for God's kingdom, all those are, are actions of hope. And by doing them, then we learn to hope. Theoretically. I mean, you can lie to yourself and deny and live in denial. But that's a whole other problem. The other thing is action. Actually, facing suffering is, I think, what Luther or, uh, Lewis talks about. So if you know and experience the future, then you will live hopefully. So then when suffering comes about, you can, uh, in a sense, see suffering in a wider picture like a hopeful picture, eternal life, heaven, the vision of heaven in Revelation 19, 21, 22. All that will inform your suffering. And then also precisely Christ's suffering. I should have thought of that. There's a great, well, I, I quote the, the man, he's a Polish Lutheran. I've been thinking about Polish Lutherans lately. Um, his, I, I, don't, I don't really know how to say his name. Valerius Herberger. And uh, so I'm reading these big fat books of his, and he actually has this really neat thing where he says, your sufferings... I, I should look that up. It, it's something like this, where uh, to make sense of your sufferings, you have to uh, in, like enmesh them in Christ's sufferings. It's like this very physical action, which is kind of gross, you know, but it's also very graphic and helpful, tangible. 
So that's how we face sufferings, is when we, we put our sufferings in Christ's sufferings, or our wounds in Christ's wounds. That is a hopeful exercise, because we know that Christ has risen from the dead. Okay, and then finally, judgment. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Lewis talks about judgment not in terms of like, hey, people are going to hell, but as the final restoration of things. And that is something we should look forward to. We look forward to judgment. Because we're children of God. That's why we can live hopefully. And then that's why we're, judgment is a hopeful thing. But we are sinners. We are, but we are forgiven sinners. So the question would be, do you want to believe the forgiven part or the sinner part only? Or what wins out the day? Well, forgiveness, right? So, okay. Again, you can, you can lie to yourself and say you're not a forgiven sinner. You cannot believe. But, of course, if, if you have trouble believing, what do we do? We call out like the Father in Mark chapter 9, say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And then your son still gets, you know, healed. So, um, I think Lewis says earlier in the book, right? Like, if, you, if you're complaining about not having faith, that is a sign of faith, right? Yeah, I said that earlier. Or like when you complain about God, that means you believe in God. So, so it's not without struggle, I mean, but this is something where uh, faith is a good thing. Okay. All right, so the two, there's two wrong ways and, and a right way of handling hope, and we'll just quickly go through these. Uh, fools, the fool's way, that puts blame on the things themselves. Oh, um, this is stupid. Which I hear a lot of sometimes with, uh, well, there you go, yep. <laughs> you said it, I didn't. <laughs> the way of a disillusioned, sensible man, and you find this a lot, like the whole idea of hope is just plain silly, right? There's too much, too many things wrong with the world, um, or, you know, life isn't going great. So I have this quote from John Caputo, he's a Christian philosopher. And uh, I, I just, I like it a lot, so I put it in there. But it, it is about hope, hope. It's the antidote to the sensible man. Uh, over the ages, the spiritual masters described the spiritual life as a journey. Indeed, we might even venture the thought that to be religious in its deepest sense is to be a searcher, living in search of something, as opposed to being satisfied with the reality that sits under our noses content with the present. Uh, I'll stop right there real quick. Uh, which means then that this world actually satisfies you or like the cynic, this is all we got. Both of those, he's, he's saying there's more to it. Okay, when Bobby Kennedy used to say, which I have no idea if that's true or not, but I'm presuming he's telling the truth. There's no footnote, but I'm assuming Bobby Kennedy used to say this. There are those who look at things the way they are and ask why. I dream of things that never were and ask why not. He was speaking with a religious heart. Religious people are the people of the why not, the people of the promise, of the hope against hope. They restlessly search for something, for a certain sort of transcendence, which means to be on the go, making a crossing, trying to get somewhere else. That is, uh, I think that's a nice hope kind of quote. So based on that, hope is the antidote to cynicism. Yeah. Um, it's, it's easy to be cynical about a lot of things. I'm very cynical about politics, I have to admit. But, yeah, but the reality, though, is that, like, well, not to get too much on a tangent, but, you know, government, God, God works through government to take care of things, to help us. So I can't be too cynical about government because this is the way we are. And when you become too cynical, then you turn into the, this sensible man, which is, just kind of gives up, kind of bumbles through life. Uh, so anyways, that's my self-confession. I don't know what you're cynical about, but hope theoretically should say to, to Pastor Nelson, good things can come from politicians, and we shouldn't be so cynical. And the reality is they do every day. I mean, 
especially when I get a speeding ticket. That's a good thing. Government's working. Well, it's a good thing I'm on my bicycle most of the time. Holly. Yeah, right. No, I, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't describe that as their primary descriptor. But um, there are obviously people in the Bible who are without hope. Yeah. I mean, one of them would be what? The Sadducees, right? Would it be without hope or misplaced hope? Yeah, I think the Pharisees would be probably misplaced hope. Yeah. Which you could argue, I guess, is you know the wrong kind of hope, which is not really hope. But that that's that's my that hurts my brain. I would say this is a disbelief, because uh, disbelief goes until today that they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Yeah. Now, well, right. But what Carol was saying is misplaced hope is that they think that there will be another, like another Messiah. Well, some again so. We're extrapolating from Jesus' time, which, of course, there are some people of the Jewish faith who believe there will be no Messiah, right? So, in a sense, they have given up hope. But then again, too, um, the people who say, well, this is just the way things are, of course, are people without hope. The thing is, though, they're not really without hope, right? I mean, there's, there's aspects of our life that spill into our life that are hopeful, and we just don't recognize it again is a whole other sign that God is still taking care of us in spite of our own weaknesses. Yeah, because I mean you wouldn't yeah, all right. Anyways. Uh the Christian way of handling hope in the more kind of uh heavenly sense is uh this uh like the thing that's happening inside us, this uh, what what Bobby Kennedy talks about, the why not. And Lewis says, you know, if, if we, uh, we have desires that might not be satisfied, that doesn't mean our desires are necessarily wrong. And he's talking about virtuous desires, not sinful desires. But is that they could just necess- they actually are fulfilled in, in heaven, not necessarily here on earth. Which is an interesting thought. But St. Augustine has a very famous quote, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Um, which kind of describes our posture. We're always like, so we're always on the move. And this is kind of the paradox: is that when you are with Jesus, you are at rest. But at the same time, what are you doing? Uh, to use that journey motif, you're always moving. So it's this kind of peculiar. You're where you're supposed to be. But where you're supposed to be is not static. It's dynamic. It's moving. It's all over. So, um, but how you describe that, of course, is, is very difficult. And that's why Lewis says, the scriptural imagery is merely symbolical attempts to express the inexpressible. And I like his little dig. If, if, if they can't understand books written for grumps, they should not talk about them. <laughs> I thought that was funny. All right. Um, yeah, we only know the fullness of eternal life by, by not knowing it. We know that it's not this. That's, there's a whole way of talking about God, and that's called negative theology, and that, that's one aspect of negative theology. We know something about heaven because we know it's not like this. <laughs> you can't say much, but... Anyways, so you know, so when we understand hope, uh, hope is is uh, like this image about jumping into the ocean. It's the ocean's way too vast to experience it all. So you really don't, you really don't get it. But at the same time, you're experiencing it. You know, you're still wet, you're still overwhelmed. But it, it's just too much. It's the excess. So that hope is uh, hope is like that. Um, because of the excess of heaven, it spills off into your present life and then informs how you do.
Anyways, that's Christian Hope in a nutshell. You can talk about hope more if you want, but let's talk about faith. It's George Michael, right? This is George Michael's song. Well, how does it go? Gotta have faith. That's the one where he, like, with the guitar, right, and the white background, the music video? Yeah. Scandalous. Okay. For those who don't know who George Michael is, you should probably keep it that way. All right, so C.S. Lewis talks about uh, uh, faith and, and in two senses, belief and life, or f- what we would typically say faith and works, but um, faith meaning there's like this, the thing you believe, this content of faith, and then like, you're living in faith. But be, even before that, though, this, there's this uh, sense of like what faith, uh, what is faith? And faith, it, you know, to put it simply, is agreeing with Jesus. But how do you, when you agree with Jesus, it's what he says and what he does. So that, that would be another way of understanding faith. But faith is received. There was a subtext to the Luther, uh, Lewis thing, but as Lutherans, this is how we want to talk about it. Faith is always received, and it's always received through the gospel and word and sacrament, which is really great for us who find it hard to believe again, Right? Or to have faith. It's very hard to have faith. Well, no kidding, because it's always given to you. It's not, uh, it's not up to you. And, you know, like me personally, growing up in a different tradition, I mean, this is like healing balm to my soul, where when I struggle with faith, what do I do? Well, I run to the preached word and the, the tangible sacraments. Uh, in the large catechism, when L- Luther talks about baptism, he talks about how faith latches onto the water, which is a great, I mean, it is a great thing. How do you know you're a Christian? You got wet. It doesn't take much thinking or understanding to know you got wet. And that image is great. Now, of course, that water is not regular water, but it's wordy water. But, um, but needless to say, it's the water itself. It, it, I mean, it's, it's a great image for how we understand faith. So then, in terms of that, then, our, our worthiness is faith as it receives the worth of Christ. So that means we're focused on the object, not, our, not on the agreeing bit. So faith is always focused on Christ, not on our agreeing. All right, this, okay, you need to know that right away, okay? Because, well, because it helps you understand sin, too. All right, anyways... So first, faith needs content. As Lewis says, it needs reasons to believe. It's reasonable. I, I like Lewis's little thing. Most people aren't Christians anymore because they drift away, not because they consciously have reasoned their way out of the Christian faith. Do you find that true? I mean, I mean most. Not everybody. But I, I, the people I know who aren't Christians anymore... Basically, it's because of something negative. Well, it was boring. They lost hope, in a sense. Or um, they didn't really know the, the content of the faith in the first place. They fell out of habit. And then when someone says, you should go to church, they're like, well, why? Why should I? Krista. I think it's... it's um you know, it's it's. Um, I think at first the faith is from the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. and uh, um, but I think every Sunday uh, you have to renew and be encouraged. Right. And uh, um, and when I see friends or thoughts or even my brother who are just don't go, then you lose um, then you lose this kind of at first perhaps excitement and. Um, and then you are just have other things what your life is occupied. That's right. So again, uh, those people have not reasoned their way out of Christianity. They simply have just what does he say? Drifted away. They drift away. It, it, it's very simple. I mean, faith again. If faith is a receiving the gospel through word and sacrament, 
if you no longer receive, then <laughs> the question kind of answers itself, right? Now, the great thing, though, is, is that the Holy Spirit is a very powerful thing and can outlast your non-receiving. So that's why we always have hope, right? But, I mean, if you, I mean, yeah, this, this still, though, can still happen. I mean, you don't go, you don't receive, you got nothing. So, surely. Yeah, I see a lot of people fall away, especially young youth in particular. Right. Right. And yeah, and so here's one of the things too, and this would obviously be a challenge for us of the faith and understanding our baptismal faith. The baptisms, uh, there's, you know, it's Jesus and the child, but it's not just Jesus and the child, is it? It's Jesus and the church. So we, we, you know, we are committing ourselves to these children also and our adults. And so Shirley's right. Yeah, if the child starts drifting away, hey, Okay, it it we are uh, you know we're guilty for that right because we have allowed this child to drift away, and so that's kind of the bummer. So anybody who who falls away or drifts away, as much as we want to blame the person, we at the same time have a have a are complicit in that right. So we ask forgiveness, and then we say, hey, come back to church. <laughs> I mean, yes, I've screwed up. I've let you drift away. I, I should not have done that. Please come back. Um, now, of course, you know, if the person says, you know, forget you and I, I'm not coming back, well, okay, then we have another different scenario. Things change. But, um, yeah, that's a whole other topic, too. Nancy. Uh, I mean, our whole culture, though, is telling Right. There's trouble based on that. A lot of them well, yeah, or at least they'll be thinking about it, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, whether they physically come into the church or they turn to God and say, "Come on, God, do something about this," in their in their bedroom at night because they're too ashamed to go to church because they've been away. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. People, people. I mean, there's very few people who who will not think of uh, the Holy Spirit. I mean, think of God during times of trouble. Now, the thing is, too, though, is that, yeah, there's this basic premise. I, I decided not to really touch on it, but Nancy brought it up. Is like, again, the self-made person, right? I mean, we're, we're unto ourselves. We're deciding things for ourselves and rather than understanding ourselves as, as part of a community. So uh, if you understand yourself as part of a community, then there's certain relationships and obligations and responsibilities that we all carry for one another. Um, but if you're onto yourself, well, then you can decide. You, nobody can tell you what to do, and you can decide for yourself. Yeah. Anyways, but the one thing, though, was for I think what Lewis was really driving at was you can't just feel the Christian faith. Christian faith is not about feeling. It's not about moods. It, there is a content to the faith, and that is the sust- sustaining factor of the belief. Of course, which you know resounds with the parable of the seeds, right? Or the sower. You know, there's some people who get planted, sprout up very quickly, and then when trouble comes along, they're done. Well, that's usually because they had a really great experience, they really have this great feeling, and then when struggle comes around, that no longer exists, and so they don't believe anymore. Now, those things also happen in a very faithful Christian, right? Sometimes we feel it, sometimes we don't, and that's why we also rely on the, the content of faith, the truth, the truthiness of it all. I think that's Stephen Colbert's word, truthiness. All right, anyways, um, oh, okay, so here's the thing. So, uh, oh, yeah, so that's it. I mean, I, I think that's all we need to say about the content of faith. Uh, that's why we're here, studying the Bible. I mean, studying what God's Word says, what doctrine is. Now, um, the other thing, though, is living the faith. So faith has a form, What is the form of faith? It's Jesus. Jesus has a life, and then we live that life. Um, 
Brene Brown's Daring Greatly book would fit in here very well. Is that um, so? Another plug for that. Uh, d- uh, d- deciding to live this faith means allowing yourself to be exposed to whatever Christ experienced. Um, and it, of course, that takes strict, great strength and courage. And daring greatly by practicing Christian virtue, we find out that, that we, first of all, we fail, right? We try to do these things and we can't do them. So we understand that we really can't do them and that we fail, not in order to make us feel bad, which most of us understand the Christian life as one bad feeling after another, but because God says so, I guess I'm going to put up with it. Um, but we also learn in practicing Christian virtue that God it, it, it still loves us in spite of us and remains with us. And by doing that, then it shows who's doing what. It demonstrates how God is active in our life, and we can't do anything without him. In this section, he, you know, he talks about how... Um, being a bad person is uh, is easy. I, I didn't quote that, but you because you're always giving in to things, right? Mm-hmm. So it takes this great strength. So you dare greatly to say, "I'm not going to give in to that." And when you don't give in to that, what happens? Well, things bad things might happen to you. I mean, I shouldn't use that. I shouldn't confuse the word bad there. Uh, suffering might happen, or you might be persecuted. Persecuted meaning you might be made fun of, or you might lose some sleep because you got to get up earlier on Sunday morning, or, or, or you, you, you might, some people might think differently about you. I mean, whether that you wanted to find that as persecution or not, that's up to you. But um, so this, this is really interesting. So when you live the faith, it does take great strength and courage, and it, it's overwhelming. But at the same time, when you find out it, it's overwhelming, you find out the one who will actually fulfill it in your life. God is at the center of all of it. And Lewis talks about, well, of course he's at the center of it because he made you. All right? So since he's at the center of all, we can't look at the, the form of faith as being, hey, I'm doing good works for God because he already, he already, he already has it. And he gives that little demonstration, which maybe most of us have experienced or seen at some time where a father will give six pence to his child in order to, to have him buy his birthday gift. And of course, the father's going to receive that birthday gift with great joy, but nobody believes that the, the kid did it on his own, that the, fa- the father paid for it and did it. I, I'd say that's a, that's a great image. But th- that, of course, is living the faith. That is. Christ gives us his righteousness. He gives us his Holy Spirit. And we subsequently live in his righteousness and through his Holy Spirit. I have two examples here. First of all, the, the explanation of the first article, I was thinking of Marilyn Hess and Jan Grzeski here, because I think they would be able to quote it. <laughs> so the explanation of the first article of the Creed in the small catechism is, I believe that God has made me and all creatures, still preserves them, provides me richly daily with all that I need to support this body and life. So, there is no self-made person, right? There's no person who says, I can do it, I'm the one, hey, life is okay, I don't need God. That's a silly statement because God is already alive in your life. Now, without faith, or without the Christian faith, you won't recognize that. And then there's a nice, really long quote. It's a great little story, and I'm not going to read it all, but it demonstrates how salvation is very hard to, to get away to be taken away from you. So there's a woman at Luther's time who's under great duress. She's about, she's sick, she's going to die. And Luther comes to her and says, what's wrong? Well, I sold my soul to the devil, or gave my life to Satan. He's like, is that it? He's like, well, well who baptized you? Well, well, Jesus. What name do you carry? Jesus. Okay, so your life isn't your own? Then who said you could give it away in the first place? God has given it to the devil, so you, you really don't belong to the devil. So when the devil comes around and says, hey, you're mine, 
uh, you should bop them on the head, and then, well, then I can't remember what he's supposed to say to her. I mean, what, what she's supposed to say, but get, yeah, knock on a skull, and he won't let me be plucked from his hand. So yeah, so that's a, I think that's a great image of how so God is so pervasive in your life. Christ is so active in your life that when you start looking at yourself, it's a denial of actually what's happening. And what the Christian faith, and, and especially like in worship, in the liturgy, um, and in the sacraments themselves, it, you have this dynamic thing happening where you, uh, you, uh, this word is, is told externally into your ear, of course goes to your soul, and then lives out in your body. Uh, the water comes externally on you, on your body, and the word goes into your soul, and you live in your body. And then, of course, at the Lord's Supper, the, 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 the body and blood of, of Jesus, the crucified, risen Christ, enters into you, lives in your soul, and your body. I mean, it, it's great imagery. Do that every week. Um, okay. So, I think that finishes up the chapter there. So, now Lewis talks about just spending a little bit more time on faith and works. And So, Matthew 7 is real helpful for us. Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount preaching, and he talks about a good tree bears good fruit. That image is also used in the Gospel of Luke. But Martin Luther, and well, basically a lot of Christians, will, will use this as an imagery of the Christian faith, of faith in good works, where when you are made a good tree by the Holy Spirit, you bear good fruit. Now, a tree doesn't think about doing or bearing good fruit because it is, that's what it does. So I have two apple trees. Planted them last year. Hopefully in the next year or two I'll, I'll get an apple. Hopefully. They're still, they're still living, so that's good. Um, those trees are meant to bear apples. Cortland and Honeycrisp. I know, hey, there we go. But if I come up to it, and get a uh, 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 Washington, is it delicious or Macintosh? Delicious, right? I don't like those. Those are a bad fruit. Yeah, I don't, uh, that's because they're the cheapest. I happen to not like, no offense if you like them. I mean, this is not a debate about what's best or wrong. But if I came up to my Honeycrisp apple tree and I picked off a delicious apple, uh, yeah, I'd be upset because, hey, that's about four years of my life where I'm really hoping that this is going to come about. But the Honeycrisp is supposed to bear Honeycrisp apples. This is just what it does. Well, every apple tree theoretically has been grafted. But that's what makes a Honeycrisp a Honeycrisp. <laughs> it has been grafted to... Uh, now, of course, now we're getting into the science of apple trees, which the whole point is is that my apple trees are going to bear the fruits that are appropriate for them. And when Jesus starts using this analogy of good fruits, um, it, is, it is the same thing, is that when Christ makes us, makes us a good tree and we bear good fruit, not by necessarily uh, by our own effort, but because Christ has made us this way. And that is helpful for us because... Being good means living good. You have this being declared good, or well, to use that good and bad language that Lewis uses, but um, you've been declared justified, and so you live justified, i.e., sanctified. All right. Now he talks about living or leaving it to God, and what basically what he means is that when you leave it to God, God is going to share His righteousness and obedience with you. And this we talk about this sonship. Uh, making us sons of God, which of course means then that Christ, uh, God is at work in you. And I forgot to quote uh, Galatians two nineteen through twenty one. It is not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. 
Uh, there's a whole slew of Bible things. Uh, but he quotes from Philippians 2, working out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's your Father's good pleasure. And then, of course, you have Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and then verse 10. And also 2 Corinthians 6, 1, where Paul is so explicit, where God and you are working together. That is not necessarily like, hey, I got my part, you got your part, God, we all work together. It is, uh, God, I need help. Uh, I can only do it with you. That's working together, that kind of working together. So, um, now, of course, when we think about doing good works, we often think about following a rule. That would be under the law. And there's a nice little quote by Edmund Schlink, which I love that guy's name. That's why I wanted to quote him. We don't hear too many Edmunds. And of course, I don't know, Schlinkster, the Schlinkster. I always, just, I always think it's a funny word. Slinky. Even though the new obedience is obedience to God's law, the good works are not deeds of the law, but fruits of the Spirit. They are not products of the Ten Commandments, but of the Gospel. So we're not coerced into doing these things, but the, it's the outflowing of faith or the overflowing of faith that we do these things. It's a great imagery. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, oftentimes we always think about following. Well, I, I have this license plate. I think I've said this many times. My first year as a pastor, I, I think our little Bible studies that we used to have, I was really like, we don't follow the law anymore, but we, you know, Christ is alive in us. I was really big on this when I was became a pastor. So we went to uh, Asheville, North Carolina for a Higher Things retreat, and on the way we stopped at a gas station, and they had these silly little license plates, and my, uh, uh, some of the high school kids bought me this license plate that says, if all fails, follow the rules, and it shows like a picture of the Ten Commandments as a dig, because I had just told them the Ten Commandments are not rules <laughs> that we follow. Um, now, again, I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of there's a little bit of semantics there going on. But we, we don't follow rules, but we follow a person. We follow Jesus. We don't follow rules. And, uh, and so this is where our Christian fo- uh, life, uh, the faith, live faith, is. this is what we're getting at. Is that we don't, we don't follow rules, but we follow a person. But, of course, when we follow that person, you know, when we follow Jesus, what does he look like? He looks like the Ten Commandments. Loving God perfectly, loving his neighbor perfectly, those are the Ten Commandments. It's just that we can't do those Ten Commandments without Jesus. Leah. Um, I think when um, they talk about teaching things, they talk a lot about um, how you should emphasize the positive. Right. So like if you're, um, and you, you do this at work too, like when we're trying to teach people how to write a certain way. Yes. We try not to write what not to write. Right. And try to write what it should look like. Yes. That's right. It's kind of the same idea. It's, it's much, I feel like it's much more positive outcome to say I'm following Jesus and my good works spring from that versus saying I'm trying to not do what the Ten Commandments tell me not to do. Right. That's exactly right. Now, okay, uh, I, well, Leah, it, it, that's what us three pastors do all the time. We'll always say something and we're like, okay, let's put it in the positive. Because it's like rolls off the tongue to say something negative. Well, don't do that. Or don't be that way. I mean, it's just so interesting how it is. And sometimes you, you want to do that. You, you can do that. But to do that all the time, think about it. If you're always talking in the negative, how do you think you're going to view life? Happy-go-lucky? Wonderful? No. If you're always going around saying, don't do that, don't be that way, I mean, it, it's, it, well... Has anyone ever seen the Saturday Night Live skit Debbie Downer? One of my favorite skits. Debbie Downer. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Where, uh, like, <laughs> um, yeah, okay, never mind. Uh, there's this, you just Google it, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of funny things. Some inappropriate, probably. Holly. <laughs> So maybe in the 
Right. Yeah, right, the earlier chapters, right. And how, if you're not Christian, was, I mean, he was, he's kind of writing this for non-Christians. Yeah, right, right, he's explaining things, yep. Right, so, how does the moral man make restitution, maybe, is the wrong word, but with him not having faith? Right. Yeah, how does he make sense of it all? Yeah, this is great. Uh, Lewis starts, the, I, I can't remember which faith chapter it is. He's like, but if you don't get this, just put the book down. I think he's speaking to this moral man where he, hopefully, at this point in the book, the moral man should be saying, I have a lot of, I have a lot of problems doing these things. And Lewis basically says, if you don't actually believe that, then just, just stop reading. If you feel like you're content, you're, you're okay, None of this other stuff will make sense to you. So the reality is, is that so he talks about the desire of doing something or desires for things in the uh, uh, the uh, the hope chapter, right? Or yeah, and realizing that we can't be satisfied in some of these things. The moral man wants to do these things. He wants to do good. Wants to uh, make the world a better place loving your neighbor, and they're going to be doing these things, but at the point, there, should, there will become a point in time in their life where they'll have to kind of reconcile the reality that they can't do it unto themselves. And not just, not just out there, but Lewis is also talking about in here. And that's, I think that's where Lewis basically is saying, okay, I've explained who you are as the moral person, Doing good is great, but when you stand before God, that won't be good enough. Uh, Martin Luther and Luther's uh, the Augsburg Confession, not to get too nerdy, uh, one of the things that makes us Lutherans, talks about this very thing where we believe that people can do a lot of great good works. Good works meaning... Civil works, you know, I, I can, uh, we can feed the poor, we can do all these great things to help people in their physical realities. But good for, for Lutherans is really primarily good standing before God. For that, that, that's quorum Deo versus quorum Mundi, between people. Um, and that's where the good works will fall short. So the moral man can live life doing good for their neighbor and on a certain level probably can be content. But when they contemplate who God is and what he does, um, they'll say, whoa, I, I'm, not, I'm not up to this without God. I can't do that by myself, but with God. So I think, I think that's what it is. That, that's a good question because that was in the back of my mind. Because um, I, I thought it odd where he's like, just don't read it anymore. Like, all right. But why would he say that unless he was getting to this point? But I could be wrong on that, too. Holly? I don't know, but is it necessarily so that the moral man would one day just give up doing good works? Oh, yeah, right. So that, that's, good. that's a good, good question, because I, uh, I think I, I meant to talk about this. I don't know if I did or not. Um, when Lewis talks about giving up or letting God letting go and letting God, or whatever it is he says. Um, and Lutherans talk about you can't do anything. That doesn't mean you don't do anything. You don't give up doing those good things, but you realize you give up you doing these things and seeing how God is active in the life. So it's an act of faith, the, the trueness of it. And that's really important for us because then the weight of success or what I, you know, oftentimes we see, hey, am I doing this? Is it, is it making a difference? Am I, you know, good enough? All, that's what I mean by success. All that stuff is removed because it's, not, it's no longer about you, but about God active in you. And so, um, yeah, there's the Article 20 of, of Good Works, Augsburg Confession again, What Makes Us Lutherans. Um, 
where uh, they have a nice little quote here. For Ambrose says, faith is the mother of a good will and a right doing. So uh, you can have, quote unquote, good will towards your neighbor and you can do right things. However, that comes from your own power. And if you're a bad tree, right, when you stand before God, those good works count for nothing. Yeah. I, I, think, I think Lewis's uh, uh, comment about, like, just put the book down is probably, I mean, he kind of puts a line in the sand, right? I mean, it's like, if you don't confess your, well, I mean, to put it in Christian knees, Christian knees, if you believe you can do it on your own, then going to church and studying the Bible is a waste of time. Because you're just only going to be affirmed in your, uh, well, heresy. Yeah, Marilyn. I think of Jennifer as she was reading this book. Oh, yeah, right. That's exactly right. Because this is what really got to her. Yeah. She came to this point. She had to make the decision then. That's right. Just believe that she was going to continue living her life as it was. Thank, yes, thank you so much for bringing that up. Because, yeah, because when she said, remember when she, uh, Jennifer Fulwire's book where she's like, I'm going to start practicing doing these things? This has to be where these chapters are where she yeah. probably got that idea from. She, well, she made the decision. Where right. She wasn't going to stop reading. She was going to continue reading. Yep. And wanted more than that. And, and the thing was is, though, that, so, again, of course, at the end of the book, we realized that she was baptized the whole time, and, you know, that screwed up everything in a sense, but, or, or that made everything great for us, I should say. Um, so even that, even that, that, that saying, "Hey, I'm going to keep going," that is an act of faith. I mean, this is this is where she's letting, she's basically saying, I, "I'm actually not in control now." Somebody else is, obviously, if you say I'm not. So, yeah, that's great. Hey, thank you so much. I had meant to write that down. <laughs> I can't believe it. When I was reading the book, I'm like, "Oh, I, I have it in my margin comp notes." I'm like, "Oh, hey, this must be from the full hour book." Um. Yeah, faith and works. I mean, I, I think the, the really thing is, like, my cup runneth over. I think we hear this stuff all over Scripture all the time, these images. Uh, when I um, teach baptism for confirmation, and sometimes the early Lord's Supper class, I'll use a pitcher of water. And, uh, you know, I have a huge pitcher and a little glass, and I just start pouring it, and it overflows. And that's a great image because all the overflow is good works. The Holy Spirit. There's just too many, too many, too much love that God gives you to keep it to yourself. You actually have to lo- love others, do something. Anyways, I, I really want to get to the making and beginning, so let's spend the last ten minutes on that. Mainly because I, I just like the Bible. Turn to John chapter one. Oh yeah, well, real quick, uh, creeds. When I was growing up, it's uh, deeds, not creeds, or something like that. When I was when I was growing up, I grew up in a tradition that really kind of downplayed any sort of creed slash confession or doctrine. It's the Bible only. Which, of course, if you read the Bible on your own, then then you, well, Luther would say you you're your own pope. I couldn't find that quote though. I didn't I I didn't spend enough time looking for it, but that's why I didn't put it in there. But I wanted to say it. Um. Yeah, you, you never read the Bible by yourself. You always read it in a company, together. So having a creed or a confession, what we would call doctrine, means simply listening to those who have gone before you. You don't read the Bible or believe without the church. I, I can't stress that enough. You don't make up things. It's handed over to you. Paul, well, yeah, parodidomy. That's a Greek word. Tradition, handing down. Hey, here it is. Handing down. And that, that, that's, if you read the Bible, you'll see that's all over the place. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a handing down. Okay. All right, so what Lewis says, the, the most distinctive thing about Christianity is the second article of the Creed. It, this is what makes Christians Christians, is Jesus. Obviously. So when you, obviously, for, for the Jewish faith, this is kind of a big deal. 
When you talk with Muslims, this is a big deal because they have a wrong confession of who Jesus is. Jehovah Witnesses, uh, who else? Mormons, I don't know who else comes around. I don't know. I mean, Christ, well, there's these Christophilians, Christophilians or something like that. Christian science. What was it? There we go. Thank you. I'm impressed that you know that. That's good. Uh, it, it was this, uh, it's this, yeah. Um, I think those are the only ones that I really kind of, if I drive around, I can see those places. It, well, there's a lot of them. Okay. Uh, and when throughout the early church, when uh, like Christian doctrine was coming up, it was always a, 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 a disagreement of who Jesus was. It's always about Jesus. Can't say, I can't stress that. Okay. Anyways, why, why is that important? Well, because when you're a child of God, or son of God, as the Bible says, we only understand ourselves as children of God and sons of God uh, through Jesus. So if you got Jesus wrong, then you're going to get yourself wrong. Okay? And so Lewis talks about begetting and making. When one begets, you beget something like you. And when you make something, you make something different. So he talks about humans begetting humans and then humans making statues that look like humans. It's a great little distinction. It's actually in the, the, that's real helpful because this is something that's actually in the scripture. John chapter 1, which I I would take a look at if you got a, if you got a Bible. But John chapter 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, so faith, again, we're talking about faith, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So this distinction here in in John kind of fits with what Lewis is talking about. So the nomenclature might be a little different, but I think the thought is the same. So in John, Jesus is, is coming to declare that there's a whole new way of um, uh, understanding yourself as, as people, as, so children of God, by the will of God, and that is understood in terms of being begotten, not born. We see this in John chapter 3, and I have the scripture quote here, and it, it, don't turn in your Bibles. Well, you could if you want to compare and contrast, but it, it's so peculiar in uh, English, because begotten, begotten is associated with which sex, male or female? Male. You're birthed through your mom, you're begotten through your father. Okay? So in John chapter 1, we're talking about the father-son relationship. So when we talk about becoming a Christian, we're talking about being begotten from above, from the Heavenly Father. John chapter 3 English has always had a difficulty with this because in Greek, the word begotten and born are what? The same word. How you know the difference is by context. So if you see the word and there happens to be a male pronoun, then you know it's begotten. If it's a female one, then you know it's being born. So John chapter 3, which I believe... I'm not sure if it's the whole thing, but I know John chapter 3 is the gospel reading for this Sunday. Um, but what I'm talking about, it has not, there's no Lenten theme here. But um, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. I'm, I'm reading off the piece of paper, not the Bible. I mean, not, not my Bible. Here. It is the Bible, but okay. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, and Jesus, I mean, John, Jesus and John is so peculiar because it sounds like he's answering different questions um, or responding to different statements. So Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is begotten from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if you look in your Bible, it could be born from above or born again. Yeah, Okay. Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born when he is old? 
Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly is truly, I say to you, unless one is begotten of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is begotten of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be begotten from above. The Spirit, now that will be different in your Bible too. I forgot to mention the word wind and spirit are exactly the same in the Greek. The Spirit blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is begotten of the Spirit. Okay. So, we got, we, we got a big, big misunderstanding going on in John chapter 3. This is, really, this, is really, this is really important for us because... Now, it doesn't change the, 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 the fundamental meaning, meaning that you can't, you can't be a Christian based on your ethnicity or you can't be a Christian without this miracle happening, which is conversion. But how Jesus and Nicodemus are talking about it is really important because Jesus, based on John chapter 1, is coming from the, the, the perspective of being begotten, the Father. And of course, Nicodemus is looking at it from being a mother. Now, why would he do that? Do you guys know anything about being, I mean, how do you know who, who's... Just, at least nowadays, right. it's traced through the mother. The mother, yeah. You, how do you know you're a Jewish person? You've been born of a Jewish mother. Yeah. So, so Nicodemus is hearing the words Jesus talking, but he's completely misunderstanding because he's still working under this hey, this this distinction between being begotten and being made. And what Jesus is talking about is is how we understand ourselves is of children of God or sons of God is based on our, our relationship with who? The Heavenly Father. And the Heavenly Father begets uh, people of the Heavenly Father or of the Spirit. Um, and so I, what we, we find out here in Scripture, explicitly here, is that um, we carry... So this is... I mean, it's going to get a little uh, graphic here, but we carry... So one of the things that in the Old Testament is is they have all these genealogies because they carry what? The seed, which of course is a manly thing, if you know what I mean, and it, and then it, it 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 ends up in Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the 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 seed, the 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 one. Now, of course, in the genealogies, there's there's men and women, so it's it's very interesting how God kind of you know tweaks it, just in case you think you know exactly what's going on. Well, it's still in my hands, people. So, um, but in this, is this specific instance, in John chapter 3, Jesus is really talking about being begotten. So, of water and spirit, of course, is a baptismal reference. Um, but born of the flesh is flesh. So, what he's saying is that your earthly uh, status doesn't mean anything with the Heavenly Father. It's the Heavenly Father's confession of you and the beginning of you. And that's why, at the end there, he has this distinction between bios and zoe, and I have a quote there at the end, which I think is really helpful. Well, Zoe is life. Yeah, both of them mean life. But typically speaking, uh, bios is like your biology, right? Like just kind of like you're studying creaturely life. And Zoe would be like, well, what kind of life do you want to live? But Lewis then makes a, another distinction between the physical life and the spiritual life. And that, that's how he's using it. But, I mean, if you were to look it up in the dictionary, Zoe would be like, uh, you know, what does your life look like? Well, we don't say, well, I'm 5 foot 11. You don't, you don't go down to, like, statistics of biology. That's, a, that's not what your life looks like. Although it does, right? That would be bios. That would be a bios answer. My life is, hey, I'm, I'm a husband of one wife and father of four children and I'm a pastor. That's what my life looks like. My, my life looks like that. Okay. Anyways, I want to get to that point, though, because as we then begin to talk about God and our relationship with Christ and our sonship of, of the Heavenly Father or children of the Heavenly Father, we understand that in these terms, and, and I think that makes all the difference.
But by the way, this is not like my own interpretation. There's people throughout Christian history that have John 3 like this, but it's such a peculiar thing because, well, I mean, Greek is funny. Krista. Uh, I only want to say, just, um, you mentioned other religion, Mohammed, also. Yeah, right. But um, these are not our gods. What, what, um, what in other, even, even... Oh, yeah, you're right. What, and you, you know why it's not your god? Because they don't, they don't know anything about Jesus. Yeah. You know, uh, even the no, yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, in Jesus in John chapter 8, that's clear as day where he says, your father is what, the devil. Yeah. Oof, okay. And nobody knows the father than I. Right, and anyone who the son chooses to reveal. So, yeah, I mean, this is important for us. Uh, Jesus is such, this, this, this is, he's so distinctive. It, it, in fact, Martin Luther's got a great quote where he talks about the fleshiness of Jesus. I have no other God than the one that's flesh. So uh, he, this is con- great confession of who Jesus is. All right, we've got to pray get out of here. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.